right, good morning. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to John chapter 9. Or actually, we're in Matthew 9, so John chapter 11, excuse me. So we're going to be in John chapter 11. We are continuing on in John chapter 11. We've been there a couple weeks. So uh, if you've not been with us, let me give you a little bit of a recap. And so this is the story of Lazarus. And so Jesus, his friend Lazarus, he falls seriously ill. And so Jesus is notified about this, but Jesus delays in coming to Lazarus. And so while he delays, Lazarus dies And so then Jesus finally goes to where Lazarus is and meets with the family. And so Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, they both confront Jesus, and they both kind of make the same statement to Jesus. They say, Jesus, if you had been there, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And so we have this heartbreaking scene, which Caleb has walked us through the past couple weeks. And so as we've walked through this, we've wrestled with some hard questions, haven't we? We've wrestled with God's sovereignty. We've wrestled with God's glory. We've wrestled with what it means for our good, how we wrestle with our pain, how we wrestle with death. And so we've seen Jesus as he responds to these things, right? How he grieves with us. We've seen his humanity on display. We saw him respond with truth and grace as he's interacted with the family. And so this week, We're going to wrestle with some of the same things as we reach the climax of this story, this incredible story where Jesus is going to raise a dead man, bring him back from death to life. So we are in John chapter 11, and we are going to read verses 36 through 44. So this is what God's word says. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened The eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. So when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So let's pray. So, Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for the chance to encounter you in your word. Lord, we thank you for the chance to see you do miraculous things. And God, we know that you want to carry us deeper. You want to carry us further than just witnessing miracles such as this. We know that you, you have the words of life. And so we ask that you help us to focus in we, we know that you want us to know that you, that you are the power, you are the power of resurrection. And so we thank you for your truth and the grace that you give us to understand. And so we ask that you be with us today, that you speak to our hearts. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to jump 
right in. And so verse 36, we talked a little bit about this last week. So if you look back again, verse 36, it says, so the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. So this is not the religious leaders. Sometimes when we see the Jews, it talks about the religious leaders, but this is actually the crowd that has come to grieve for Lazarus. So they are here and they have seen Jesus as he's come to the tomb. This is right after he has wept. So uh, Caleb last week talked about Jesus weeping. That word there is literal tears, that Jesus has shed literal tears for his friend who has died. And so, like I said just a moment ago, this demonstrates the real humanity of Jesus, that this is not just God playing human. This is real human emotion that Jesus is displaying, that he is moved emotionally by death, just like every one of us, that he enters into our suffering with us. And so look at what the ESV Study Bible says about this. It says that Jesus' Jesus's example shows that heartfelt mourning in the face of death does not indicate a lack of faith. That's important for us to remember, that mourning in the face of death does not indicate a lack of faith, but honest sorrow at the reality and suffering of death. So we want to remember that even in death, even as we mourn, even as we question and grieve sometimes, that does not indicate that we have weak faith or that we have lesser faith, but it can be seen as a reality just of this fallen world. So, verse 37, it says, But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? And so we see the crowd's response to them witnessing Jesus as he grieves for his friend. And so they raise what seems like a valid question, isn't it? It's one that we have probably asked ourselves in some form or fashion. God, since you've done this before, why haven't you done it this time? Why don't you do it now? And so this is a reference back to John chapter 9. The crowd remembers this extraordinary miracle where Jesus opened the eyes of a blind man. This this story has become well known that people all know it. And so the crowd's like, hey, you healed this blind man. And they know that this is a link to the Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah. That the Old Testament, as it pointed to the Messiah, said that he would come with great power. That he would uh, do extraordinary miracles like opening the eyes of the blind. And so they're seeing this, and they raise this question. And so we don't know their real motivation. Perhaps they are puzzled and confused. Perhaps it's a little bit of a passive-aggressive rebuke. But either way, they're seeking to understand why does Jesus operate the way that he does? And more specifically, why doesn't he operate the way that they've been taught to expect? Right? They have this idea, they've been taught, this is what the Messiah is going to do, but Jesus isn't operating in that same sense. And so there's a sense that they want this to be true. They want Jesus to be the Messiah. They know these things that he's done. And so they ask, man, if Jesus really did love Lazarus, why did he take so long to get here? Why would he not save him? And I have to think that if I was around back then, I would have... That same sort of question. It seems valid, but what that really reveals is just a weakness of faith on their part. Because their faith isn't in Jesus. Their faith is in this demonstration of power. That their faith is not on who Jesus is. It's not on the person of Jesus. 
The emphasis instead is on what Jesus does and not who he is. And so that is a big difference. That's something that we don't want to gloss over. Because by placing their faith in what Jesus does, what they're doing is they're, they're admitting that they need this constant show of miracles, right? That their faith requires the reassurance provided by a miracle. So they, they, need, they need a miracle, and their faith is reassured by that. But if you're constantly living in that sort of mindset, what happens when you don't get a miracle? Your faith is weak. Your faith is weakened because you're like, hey, God, I, I need this. I need this. Where are you? You've done this before. And so this crowd, they're realizing that their faith is based not on who Jesus is, but on what he does. And so when we have that mindset, what it does is it cheapens who Jesus is. It discounts and downplays who he is. So Jesus has told us that he is the life and light of men, that he is the resurrection and the life, but instead they just see him as just a common miracle worker, if there is such a thing. They're more concerned with what do we get out of Jesus instead of who he really is. And so the question for us is, is this us? Do we have that same sort of mentality where we seek Jesus based on what he can do for us? Have any of you all ever done that? Ask that sort of question. I used to do this when I was a teenager. I used to seek God's will for my life by shooting free throws. And so if I shot a free throw and it went in, that was a yes. And if it missed, it was a no. So, you know, I'm asking things like, am I going to do okay on this test? Or if I, if I were to work up enough courage to ask a girl out, would she say yes? Um, and so what that should tell you is I was a really bad free throw shooter. Um, but we ask these sorts of questions all the time in our life, don't we? God, I need you to do this so that I can believe you're real. God, if you're there, prove it. God, if this doesn't turn out, I don't know that I can believe anymore. Or God, if you do this, I'll follow you. We're just like the crowd sometimes in that we rely on these demonstrations of power rather than on who Jesus is. So let's look again at verse 38 through 39. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and the stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. And so uh, just a little side note, this is one of my favorite verses just for some of the unintentional comedy involved. And so... My version, New American Standard, says that there's a stench. So ESV, what does ESV says that Martha says? There'll be an odor. That sounds like really prim and proper. Like, oh, Lord, there'll be, a, there'll be an odor. Uh, who, who remembers reading this out of the old King James? Did anybody read old King James once upon a time? It's okay. This is a safe space. You can admit that if you did. Do you know what the old King James said? He stinketh, right? So... As the, the immature middle schooler in me, I think of like the medieval monks that were like copying the, um, the, the transcripts. Do you think that they giggled when they wrote, he stinketh? 
Um, that's just how my mind works. So we see that Jesus is deeply moved. We saw this last week with Caleb. This is a Greek word referring to a horse snorting. It's a deep and strong emotional reaction that Jesus is displaying. And so we saw that there are two things going on when we see this, this sort of word, that Jesus is indignant. He's upset that there's a reality of death, that death is a part of this world because of our sin, because of the fall of man. But there's also an intense sorrow that Jesus is feeling, that his body is essentially trembling because he is caught up in the emotion of the sisters of the family, that he has felt their sorrow with every single bit that he is. It's real, it's genuine. And so he arrives at the grave, he arrives at the tomb. It's a cave with a stone in front, and that's a little bit of foreshadowing, right? We'll get there in a couple weeks, in a couple months maybe. But Jesus says to, to the people there, he says, remove the stone. And so Martha objects, she says, there's a stench. We talked a little bit about this. That's because the body is decomposing. And the Jews, they didn't embalm the body, so... They covered it with spices to try to cover up the smell. But on top of that, these graves, they're caves in the side of a hillside. And so they're usually big enough to hold about eight people. And so there's not just Lazarus inside. That's what scholars think. There's probably more than just him inside. And so what would happen is after a body has been dead for a year, the families would go in and then take out the bones and then put them in a box and store it in their house. And that is a terrible tradition. I'm glad we don't do that anymore. But you can see why Martha would object. Like, it's going to smell awful. Why do you want to do this, Jesus? She says that he has been dead four days. Again, we talked about this last week, that the Jews had this belief that the soul hovered over the body for three days. And it was hoping to re-enter the body. And so when the, the soul saw the body start to decay, usually that happened at the third day, that the soul would be like, okay, I guess I'm not going to go back in, so now I can get out. All right? So the soul leaves the body, and so at this point, death is irreversible. And so what this tells us is that Lazarus is really, really, really dead, that anybody judging would know that he is dead, that there's going to be no natural resuscitation, by the day's standards, he was totally dead. He's not accidentally buried alive. He is dead. And so as Martha objects, we see that she has this misunderstanding. She thinks that Jesus just simply wants to weep over the body of her brother. She doesn't think that Jesus wants to resurrect him. She doesn't realize that resurrection is about to be immediate, that Jesus is going to bring him back to life. And so look at how Jesus responds to her in verse 40. It says, Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so this calls back to mind to verses 25 through 26. So look back up just a couple verses. Jesus is calling her to remember this, what he has just told her. So in verse 25, he says that I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And so he's asking Martha, hey, do you remember this? Because what he's saying is that I am the resurrection and the life, and if you believe that I am the resurrection and the life, 
then I can be trusted even in the face of death because I will do nothing other than that which displays God's glory. And this glory of God, this is the main purpose that he is reminding her. That it's not about bringing Lazarus back from the dead, that even as we read the story, that's hard to accept sometimes, that it's not about bringing Lazarus back for the dead. Remember that Jesus hasn't promised Martha to bring him back from the dead. And Martha and Mary and the crowd, they believe that Jesus' power is limited merely by his presence. They've all said, Lord, if you had been there, you could have saved him. But they've forgotten that Jesus healed the official son. We saw that back in John chapter 4 where the official comes and says, Lord, will you heal my son? And Jesus just speaks the word. He's miles away. And at his word, the son is healed. And so his presence isn't the issue. Jesus is demonstrating that he has a position of authority over death that is not confined by distance or time. And so Jesus is telling her, hey, death is about to be overcome. And so what he is doing for Mary and Martha and for the crowd and even for us, he is changing our belief. He's changing it from some abstract belief of what will happen on the last day. He's changing that belief to a belief in the one who will make that last day a reality. Do you catch what's going on? He's changing it from an abstract belief of what will happen on the last day to belief in the one who will make the last day a reality. And so what we want to know is that our hope is not in an event, that our hope is not even in the resurrection on the last day, as awesome and incredible as that will be, but our hope is in a person, that there is no resurrection and there's no life outside of Jesus. And so what he's doing, he's offering more than just conventional comfort. He's offering more than just weeping with the family. And he's offering something better than a solution for Lazarus, better than even raising him from the dead. Jesus is telling Martha that, hey, I'm giving you myself, that I am better than any healing that you could experience, that I am even better than resurrection from the dead. And he's telling her that spiritual resurrection, spiritual life, salvation is better than raising Lazarus from the grave. Spiritual life, our salvation is better than raising Lazarus. That is the better miracle. Salvation is the better miracle. Doesn't that sound crazy? Sounds absolutely crazy, but this reminds us of what Bart just read in Matthew chapter 9. I want to read it again. This is what Matthew writes. He says, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. So with this paralytic, what is the first thing that Jesus tells him? He says, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't seem to address his physical need, does he? 
And why does he do that? It's because his forgiveness and salvation are the better miracle here. That that is better than that man being healed, being able to walk. So if Jesus only forgave his sins and granted him salvation, that is far better than being healed and being able to walk. If Jesus only healed him, but didn't forgive his sins, didn't grant him salvation, that guy is still in trouble, right? He's still on a path to hell, to eternal judgment, eternal punishment. And so it is better to have spiritual life than having the ability to walk. So let that sink in. Do we really understand that? If we were just reading the story and the story stopped there, would we be okay that Jesus just granted him the forgiveness of sins and not the ability to walk? So Jesus senses the religious leaders. He senses their indignation. And so he's going to prove his authority to forgive sins. And so he asks, hey, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. And so what's easier to say? It's your sins are forgiven. And why is that? It's because you can't prove that. That's not something that you can see. That if I tell Byron over here, hey, your sins are forgiven... Nobody can go up to God's book and say, yep, Byron's sins are forgiven, right? You have to take my word for it. Don't take my word for it. We're taking Jesus' word, so we have to take Jesus' word. And so it's much harder to say, get up and walk. Why is, it, why is that the harder thing to say? Because it immediately reveals itself, right? You'll know immediately whether or not that becomes a reality. It's undeniable at that point. You can't fake it. If Jesus says, get up and walk, and the guy can't get up and walk, it ruins Jesus' credibility. It ruins his ministry, right? So that's the harder thing to say. And so Jesus calls his shot, right? Has anybody ever called their shot before? You know what I'm talking about? So Jesus calls a shot. I called my shot one time. So Heidi and I, before we were dating, we were kind of in that flirty stage. Uh, she wanted to play me one-on-one -on -one in basketball. So we were camp counselors at, at, a, at, a, at a youth camp, summer camp. And so we were playing. And so I was interested in her, so I couldn't just absolutely destroy her on the court. So I'm letting her win. It comes down to the last shot. We are tied. Next basket wins. I have the ball. And so I go... I have the ball in my hands, and I go to Heidi, and I go, and I shoot. Now, when I do that, that shot better go in, right? Or else I'm ruining my shot. So, if you want to know, the shot did go in. I won. She got mad. She made me do it again. She said that didn't count. So, I blew another kiss shot. It went in again. So, we've been happily married for 17 years. Um, <laughs> But Jesus calls his shot, right? He says, get up and walk. And the man does just as Jesus says, demonstrating his authority to forgive sins, right? So along those same exact lines, Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life. This is, this is what he's reminding Lazarus of. 
And what Jesus is about to do for Lazarus proves that he has the ability to keep his promise, the promise that he is the resurrection and the life. And by declaring that, as he raises Lazarus from the dead, that demonstrates this truth, that Jesus is the giver of spiritual life because he raises Lazarus, giving him back physical life. And so as Jesus does this, as he proves that he is the resurrection and the life, that points to his own resurrection. And that through his death, through his resurrection, that we as believers, we are united in faith with him, and we will share in his risen life, even though we will experience physical death. But it's important for us to remember that we don't receive a better life or a different degree of life through Jesus, that we experience something entirely different, that we experience life without the constraint of death. So Caleb mentioned this song. It's one of my favorites, Christ Be Magnified. We sing the line that death is just the doorway to resurrection life. And so this, if this is the reality, all of this points to God's glory in our life. And so this is what Jesus is asking Martha to believe. And this is what he is asking us to believe. So let's look at verses 41 and 42. John writes, So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. So we see that they remove the stone, and we see that Jesus prays. He addresses God the Father. He expresses his own submission to the Father's will. And he expresses gratitude that God the Father hears him. He's giving thanks with confidence because he knows that God hears him. But you'll note that he doesn't ask that Lazarus be raised, right? Jesus already knows that he's going to do this. So the only thing left for him to do is to thank God for it. And so we see the purpose of his prayers. He makes it very explicit. He prays for the sake of those listening, those gathered around him. And we remember that Jesus says things intentionally so that we will hear and understand them. He wants to draw us into the intimacy that he has with the Father. He's not just doing this for show, but he says the whole purpose of what he's about to do is so that those around will know that Jesus is sent by God and that the purpose of this miracle is to validate his claim to be the Messiah, to be the Son of God. And in order for that to happen, Lazarus had to die. So again, we want to realize that the purpose of the miracle isn't just to raise Lazarus from the dead, that the purpose is not the miracle in and of itself, right? That Jesus isn't asking to raise Lazarus to life, but instead, he's asking that people believe in who he is. For us to know that he is who he says that he is, that he wants us to put our faith in the person and not in the event. And so Andreas Kostenberger, he sums it up. He says, Jesus knows exactly who he is. He is under no compulsion to prove himself, but he wants his followers to grow in their faith in him. So let's look at verses 43 and 44. 
It says, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who died came forth, bound hand and foot with the wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to him, said to them, unbind him and let him go. So we have this absolute miracle that Lazarus is now alive. And so imagine just being there as this dead guy walks out of the tomb. He's been in there four days. I wonder, like, did he look kind of decomposed? What did that look like? But we see that Jesus, he yells with a loud voice that death is obedient to the voice of the creator. We know that Lazarus was really dead because if he had just been asleep, he would have walked out when they moved the the stone, right? But instead, it took the voice of Jesus to call him out. Jesus calls Lazarus by name. And so again, scholars think that there were probably more bodies in that tomb. And so if Jesus had just said, hey, come out, can you imagine those other bodies walking out as well? But Jesus specifically, he calls Lazarus out. And through this, we see his divine power. It's absolute proof of his divinity. There's no denying it that Jesus has power over the material and physical world. And only God has the power and the ability to raise someone from the grave. There's absolutely no way that Lazarus could have done done this himself. That only Jesus saves from death. And this foreshadows the final resurrection. And he's pointed us to this already in John chapter 5. So look at this. In John chapter 5, verses 24 through 29, he's already foreshadowed this. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Again, talking about our spiritual life, our salvation. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so we've clearly seen this with Lazarus. But if we are believers, we've seen this in our own lives. So that brings us to our applications. So we have two applications today. And so application number one We want to remember God's sovereignty and his glory. Remember God's sovereignty and his glory. And so we've talked a ton about this throughout the entire gospel of John. And so as we talk about God's sovereignty, as we talk about him working for his glory, there's always this temptation to think that we just have to accept what God says, that as he works for his good, and his perfect will for his glory, there's this temptation to just accept that truth from an unemotional standpoint. And sometimes if we read these verses, we may get that sort of thinking. If you think back to verse 4, Jesus says that this sickness, when he's informed about it, he says this sickness, won't resu- or this sickness will result in God's glory. In 14 and 15, he says, 
he says to the disciples, hey, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there, right? And he tells Martha, hey, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And Martha's like, you can almost hear it in her voice. She's like, yeah, I know. I know that you'll raise him on the final day. And so we're almost tempted to, to accept that is cold and calculating that God is some sort of unloving puppet master. That he uses Lazarus' death as a setup to prove himself. That he lets Lazarus die in order to ratchet up the tension. That maybe God doesn't care about us because he only cares about himself and his glory. And that he ordains events in our lives for our own good. Therefore, We don't need to be bothered by it. And so we have to be emotionally aloof because he's told us everything's going to work out for his glory. But what we want to realize is that this is a wrong application of God's sovereignty. This causes us to project our own coldness onto God. We think that he's emotionally uninterested in us in just the same way that we might be uninterested in somebody else. So we want to remember that Jesus really does know us, and not just in some sort of generic sense, that he knows our pain, that he walks with us, that he doesn't abandon us, he doesn't leave us, that he weeps with us, and he comforts us. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen with Lazarus, didn't he? Like, it wasn't some sort of surprise. He knew that Lazarus would die. He knew that he was going to raise him back to life. He knew that he was going to turn the grief of his family into joy. And yet Jesus still reacted emotionally to the reality of Lazarus' death. And so like Caleb said last week, that we grieve with hope. That Paul instructs us that we don't grieve as those who have no hope, but we grieve with hope. And so what we want to do is we want to cling to that tension, that it's not an either-or sort of proposition for us. It's a both-and, that we grieve with hope, that it is good to grieve, it is good to hope, and Jesus is there in that tension. So as we walk through suffering and pain, we can be confident that God is working for His glory according to His sovereignty, and we can know that Jesus is there to comfort us. Both things are absolutely 100% true, that we can trust his purposes and we can trust the comfort of his presence with us. And so as we walk through periods of suffering, periods of pain, we don't need to just grit and bear it. We don't have to just think that we have to bear it all on our own. That Jesus wants us to turn to him. He wants us to lament. He wants us to grieve. He wants us to weep. Like we talked about earlier, as we do that, that doesn't mean that we are losing our faith. It doesn't mean that our faith is weak. But we can turn to Jesus because he weeps with us. And so we need to remember that God is working for our good in our pain, that our good and his glory meet in the same exact place. And that is the beauty of God's sovereignty, that we can't always trace the why, but we can find comfort in the who. 
And so that leads us to our second application, to remember that our hope is a person, that our hope is a person. And so in this passage today, we've seen that Jesus, we've seen his clear power, his divine power over death, haven't we? He raised a dead man to life. And that is a true, that is a right application for us to know and to sit in. But don't you find it curious that there's no mention of Lazarus's reaction? Like, we don't know what Lazarus thought. It's almost anticlimactic, isn't it? Like, what was it like in the tomb? What did he experience those four days? We don't even know what the rest of Lazarus's life was like. Did it change him? Did it impact how he lives life? We don't even have a reaction from the sisters. And why is that the case? It's because they are not the point. Lazarus's life is not the point. Jesus is the point. That Jesus is the focus. That our hope is in a person. It's not in an event. That not even the resurrection of a dead person. That's not the point. And so think about this for just a second. That there's a whole crowd gathered around. They all witness this miracle, this dead guy coming out of the tomb. But even that doesn't cause everyone to believe in him, to believe in Jesus. We'll talk about that more next week. But this incredible, incredible miracle isn't enough to spur on belief for some of these people. That sounds absurd, doesn't it? See a dead guy walking out and you're still not going to believe in Jesus. So if we focus on what happens to Lazarus, if that's all we focus on, we miss Jesus because he is the main point of the story, not the resurrection of Lazarus. That Jesus displays his power over death, not just to show that he has that power, but to demonstrate that he is the resurrection and that he is the life. That there is no resurrection and there is no life outside of Jesus, that there is no resurrection in life without Jesus, that nothing can hinder Jesus from giving life because he is life. So Lazarus was raised only to die again. So Lazarus's resurrection can't be the point of the story. But in his resurrection, Jesus points to the to the eternal life that his death and his resurrection will secure for us who believe in him. That is the point, that Jesus is better, that Jesus is better and that is the glory of God, that if Lazarus believed and was never raised back to life, that is still a better miracle than Lazarus not believing and being raised to life only to die again. That Jesus is better than any miracle that he ever performed. That he is better than healing the official son from miles away. That he is better than healing the paralytic, telling him to get up and walk. That he is better than giving sight to the blind. That he is better than raising a dead man to life. That all these miracles are nothing in and of themselves. But all these miracles point to who Jesus is that these miracles do not save us, that these miracles cannot be the object of our faith, because if they are, 
We're just going to keep seeking more and more and more miracles in order to supplement our faith. We'll be found lacking. But it's Jesus who is the object of our faith, that God's glory is revealed in the miracle of salvation of sinners. That is where God's glory is, that we are saved in him, that our hope is in him alone and nothing else, that resurrection and life is found in him, not in some miracle. And so Jesus is better. We saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. And so if he can do that, and if Jesus is even better than that miracle, then he is better than anything that any of us can ever walk through. Most likely, none of us will see somebody raised from the dead. But if Jesus is better than that, he is better than any job that we could ever hope to have. That he is better than any amount of money, any amount of comfort or security that we could have. That he is better than any healing that we could ever pray for. That he is better than any marriage. That he is better than any repaired marriage that he is better than any prodigal child returning home. And so he is better than any answer to any prayer that we could ever pray. And so some of us, we put our hope in those things, thinking our life will be better, that if God will just do this, everything will work out. But Jesus is saying, I'm better than any answer to prayer. Like, I want you to know that this is not just Me saying this to you, like it's not just easy to say from up here, but like I've walked through this too, right? I lost a father-in-law this year to cancer. And you know, we prayed for healing. We prayed for years for healing. God didn't answer that prayer the way that we wanted. We're walking through a foster care situation right now where it appears that we're not going to get the answer that we want. And yet... Jesus is reminding me that he is better, that even if he doesn't answer that prayer the way that I want him to, that he is better, that Jesus is our hope, that he is better. He wants us to cling to him and to him alone. It's only in him that we find resurrection. It's only in him that we find life. So do you believe this? So stand with me as we pray. Lord God, you make it so clear to us that you are better, that you are the resurrection and the life, and that hope is only found in you, and that this is hard for us to grasp sometimes, and it is hard to see in the midst of our own struggles. And so I ask that you teach us to our hearts. Help us to understand as we preach this truth to ourselves. Help us to cling to you in this tension that we need you and you alone. And so we thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you for meeting us in our need. We thank you for your grace and your salvation. So we ask that you move in our midst. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.